What's up, guys? Andrew here from the Forgotten Jesus Podcast. Here is a bonus episode for you. Let me set this up. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation between Pastor Robbie Gowdy and his good friend, Rabbi Jason Sobel. They're going to talk about everything from Hamas and everything going on in Israel and the Palestinian crisis, all the way to uh, Rabbi Jason's new book, In the Miracles of Jesus. You don't want to miss this. Check this out. to hear from one of my good friends and uh, just a fellow lover of the Jewish people, the Eastern culture, obviously because of your background, Rabbi Jason Sobel's with us today on the uh, Forgotten Jesus podcast. So thank you for joining us. Hey, Shalom, Shalom. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we have known each other for a couple years now, and uh, I remember just before we met, we had a mutual friend that was trying to connect us for about two or three years. And he's like, you got to meet the rabbi. And I've been telling rabbi about you. And so we finally met and hit it off. Uh, tell us a little bit about, for those who are, uh, who are not familiar with your background, just tell them a little bit about your story as we get started. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up uh, in the Holy Land, New Jersey, where there were more Jews than in <laughs> Jerusalem. Uh, went to Hebrew school as a child, had my bar mitzvah, lost uh, a lot of my family in the Holocaust. So being Jewish was really important. Was working in the music industry in New York City with a lot of rap stars and rock stars and looked at the lives of all these famous people and said, there has to be more to life than just this. Began my spiritual journey. And in the midst of that, I was going to synagogue, studying martial arts, doing yoga, and I was meditating one day and my soul left my body, went through the roof of my house into heaven, and I saw this king, Ramvanisa, and I felt, I saw the, the glory of God from the throne, felt the power of God pulsate through every cell in my body. It's an un, you know, indescribable feeling. And this king told me I was called to serve him. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that that king on the throne was Yeshua, that it was Jesus. And the next thing I know is down in my body, shaking under the power of heaven, running around going, I'm called to serve him. Mom's like, you're called to serve who were Jewish, for goodness sakes, you know? And I had no idea what to do with that. I didn't come to faith at that moment. Because really, I grew up with, 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 with Catholics, Jews and some liberal Presbyterians, but my best friend came to faith and he said, Jason, uh, you know, could you tell the difference between the Old and the New Testament? And I said, sure. He read me this passage. He was bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, by his stripes were healed. He said, older and older. I said, well, that's the New Testament. He said, no, that's Isaiah 53, the Jewish prophet speaking 700 years before the Messiah ever walked the face of the earth. I was provoked to jealousy, attended a messianic congregation with him. At the end of the evening, they dimmed the lights and prayed. I prayed. I figured I need all the help I can get. I said, if you prayed this prayer for the first time, raise your hand. I raised my hand. And uh, they said, if you raise your hand, you've just been born again. Will you please stand up? I had no idea what it meant to be born again, but I gave my mother enough trouble when I was born once. God only knows what would happen 
if I was born again. And I thought I was safe. No one was supposed to be looking. Every eye is closed. Every head is bowed. It was a personal decision between you and the Lord. And the rabbi said, I saw you raise your hand. If you can't stand here for the Messiah, you won't be able to stand for him in the world. And I knew we weren't going anywhere until I stood up. That was Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, who led me to Yeshua, gave me the first New Testament I'd ever seen. And there's a lot more to the story, but uh, read the New Testament, was blown away how Jewish it was, gave my gave my life fully to Yeshua as the Messiah of Israel. And what's crazy is one week after I came to faith or so, I had a friend in New York City who was homeless and needed to have both legs amputated because of frostbite, went to see him, laid hands on him, said, silver and gold have I known, but I have in the name of Yeshua, rise, take up your bed and walk. He got healed, he came to faith, and he walked out of the hospital and I knew God was real. And, you know, I knew the miraculous was true and important. And uh, that ties into this book we just wrote, Signs and Secrets of the Messiah, A Fresh Look at the Miracles of Jesus. Yeah. I love it. I actually just finished the book. It, it's amazing. Uh, okay. I, I just I was just away uh, last week on um, a break and went through. I couldn't put it down. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment because I want to talk about that. But you have a ministry, just for those who are interested, Fusion Global, uh, obviously a ministry to enrich people's perspective of Jesus as a Jewish Messiah, not a, like we say in the podcast, not a blonde-haired, blue-haired, blue-haired, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed American surfer dude like we see in the movies. Uh, he was a Middle Eastern, dark-skinned rabbi. And uh, you've written about that in Mysteries of the Messiah, for those who are not interested in that book, or The Rock, The Road, The Rabbi with Kathy Lee Gifford was another one. Um, but this one is a little different, right? Because you take the signs and or the miracles in John, which or the and even the interactions in John and really break them down in an amazing way. Before we get to that, tell us a little bit about the nation and, and the state of affairs with uh, Israel right now. Obviously, we're all watching this and um, you know, we're waiting to see who else gets involved. But you and I talked by text uh, last week. This just feels different, right, Rabbi, than, than times past. And obviously the 73 Yom Kippur War, which I think is fascinating. You, you're going to, I know you see this, all right, but I told my staff, God's always about numbers, Gematria. It's interesting. This attack happened 50 years, almost to the week from the first attack from 1973 Yom Kippur. And it happened on the 7th day i don't know if you thought of that i don't know if you have any answers for that but i thought that was fascinating just looking at the signs of the times even in the attack recently thoughts on that yeah absolutely i mean every number has a positive and a negative aspect to it there's always that counterpart to it and so one of the things that's interesting about the number 50. I mean, we know on the positive side, 50 is the number of freedom. It is the Jubilee, for example. It represents Mount Sinai, Pentecost, this great revelation. One of the interesting things that the rabbis say is that part of the reason why God redeemed Israel out of Egypt when he did was because they had reached this the 49th level of spiritual impurity 
And once you once you reach the 50th from a Hebraic understanding, you've reached the point of ultimate impurity, ultimate uh, evil, and there is no return, right? And there's also this idea that he, so that's why 49 days counting down to Mount Sinai, to Pentecost on the 50th day, he was purifying them of their past, preparing them uh, for that. And then you know, some rabbis, you know, one position is, you know, and I hold this, that that the the Torah was given on a Shabbat, the seventh day of the week. Well, we get into a lot with the number seven in the book, and we can get into that uh, more. But one of the interesting things about the seven number seven is the number of completion. And so this is complete evil. Mm. Uh, it's like it's like Mary Magdalene, who was had seven demons. That I cast mm -hmm. out of her. So I think that this is this is that. And I think there's a there's a deeper thing there, right? Because you know, the rabbis say, turn it, turn it, turn it. Everything is in the Torah, everything is in the Hebrew scriptures. So the first place that the word Hamas occurs is actually in the is actually in the Bible. The first place it occurs is Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, the Timale Ha'aretz Hamas. And the earth was filled with Hamas, and God was grieved. And so it was because of the Hamas, which in Hebrew means violence, that God decides to bring a flood upon the earth. Yeshua says, as it was in the days of Noah, Matthew 24, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man's return. So there was this spirit, there was this demonic spirit of violence. The word male in Hebrew can also be used in full uh to be filled with this with the spirit of be filled with a demonic spirit right and so there was a sense there was this demonic spirit of violence and hatred that filled the people in the days of noah yeshua says it's going to be like the days of noah so it's no coincidence i believe that this spirit has returned to the earth and we're seeing it and i think hamas is just kind of a symbol of that you know it's it's, it's a harbinger it's a prophetic sign of what's happening uh, in in the earth and you know i i mean there's so much more that we could say you know about that even to the fact that the days of noah was the flood and the this campaign of hamas had the word flood in it right <laughs> so i mean even down i mean we could keep going into the details and just yeah. see these crazy uh connections that i don't believe are any coincidence yeah, and it's like they're telling us. It's like the, they name themselves, their identity. They are giving us a billboard saying, hey, this is what we are. This is what we're about. Sons of Issachar, don't be caught off guard. You need to know the times and seasons. And so I think that's important for us to know. So tell us what 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 the big issue I, I, I feel like is this idea of the two-state party. And I uh, hear on both sides, if Israel invades and takes over Gaza, that'd be the worst thing. And Gaza says, we want our land back. I was, I was hanging out uh, recently, I was in at an event, and I was hanging out at uh, a coffee shop, and there was a Jewish rabbi, I think he was a rabbi from a local synagogue, and he had just come back from Israel, and he was basically saying that um, that's all they're saying is, we want what happened back in you know 75 years ago 40 that's all they're talking about so explain what they're saying that we're here to the show we just want to go back what you took from us 75 years ago can you tell us what the the big issue is and 
your thoughts on where we are with this. Okay, so, I, so let me just preface this by saying there's what they're saying in the media and then there's what they're really saying. Okay, that's good. Yeah, so, that's, so, good. That's, so, good. So, that's good. So let me just start by saying, but to break down what they claim to be saying, okay, is that, I mean, we got we got to go back a little further, okay? Let's just break down a, 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 a three-minute history of, of the land, right? So Turkey, the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire is control of almost the entire Arab world. It's a Muslim-controlled empire out of, out of Turkey. They side with, with, the, with the Axis powers, with Germany in World War I, lose the war. They lose power over the land. There's something known as the British Mandate. Britain is asked to come in, take control, divide up the land, including a Jewish state and an Arab state, which never actually occurs under the British Mandate. They keep control. They, they do it in the other parts of the Arab world, but they main, can maintain control over the historic uh, Jewish homeland, what we call Israel today. They decide for a number of reasons to pull out and don't want anything to do with it. The UN makes a resolution for a Jewish state and a Palestinian state in the land, in the land. Okay, 55% to Israel, 45% to the 45% to the Arab inhabitants, though the Arab 45% was better than the Jewish 55% as far as the quality of the land. The Arabs say no. Six nations invade Israel and they say to the local Palestine, local Arab population, they weren't called Palestinians at the time, they say, leave your homes because we're going to wipe them into the scene. You can come back and have even more land. So many leave, some stay, many leave. They lose the, the Arab, six Arab nations led by, you know, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, number of nations. Um, they lose Israel gets more land than they had originally been promised, but they won it out of a battle that they didn't create when they declared themselves a state. But but control over the old city, uh, Jerusalem, and control over the West Bank was, was under Jordanian control. Egypt had the South, including Gaza. That's how it was. And then in 1967, the Arab nations attacked again. This time they lost what's known as a six day war. They had it overwhelmingly defeated. And that's when Jerusalem is liberated. The Israeli, so Israel takes control of the uh, Jewish quarter, East Jerusalem, the West Bank. They win Sinai, all of that area. And now they had way more land. But again, they didn't start the war. They didn't want the war. That's what ideally the Palestine, what's called, who the Arab people call the Palestinians, call themselves Palestinians today. By the way, before Israel was a state, both Jews, Jews had, were called Palestinians, right? Jews and Arabs had Palestinian passports. So both wow. Jews and Arabs can be called Palestinians from that sense. That's a whole nother discussion. They want to go back to the pre-1967, what's called the Green Line. 
And so mm -hmm. they want back all of the West Bank. They want back the old city of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem. They want the old city to be a capital of a Palestinian state, including uh, you know, Judea, Samaria, or most of it, uh, you know, you know, parts of the parts down by Gaza, other places. So th this is what they're talking about of what they want to go back to. But just to be clear, they lost territory twice based on wars that they initiated. And any Arab people that stayed in the land in the 1940, in 1948 got Israel residents, Israeli residency. So there's 2 million Arab residents of Israel today with complete freedom, including wow. to vote, have representation in the parliament. So just want to be very, very clear uh, about that. So that, that's what they're asking for Okay. Asking yeah. for in the media. That makes sense, yeah. So you obviously had a trip planned to be there right now. I mean, literally right now. What is your, and we're going to get to the book after this, but what do you feel is going on? I mean, could you give us, obviously, you know, obviously whenever there, like you said, there's two sides to every number, good and bad. And I think there's two sides to every situation. The, the challenging thing is we mourn for brothers and sisters in Israel who have already lost lives, who are kidnapped right now. We're praying for Israel. Uh, but the flip side is Americans, Westerners are asking questions, particularly to me and you, that will have never asked those kind of questions or, and are more aware of apocalyptic end times situations and circumstances. So I think there's a potential for a revival of sorts, particularly in, in America, people aware of this thing. So what do you make of what's going on? And for us as believers of Jesus Christ here, particularly in the Western part of the world what what can you encourage us to be doing in the meantime uh, obviously praying for Israel's is one but anything comes to mind yeah i mean i think that i mean there's a number of things i mean let's just be clear that this is a horrible situation it's the 911 it's the pearl harbor it's the most greatest massacre of jewish people since the holocaust the brutality of it um, and it has the potential to spill out and become a much greater conflict with greater ramifications. I think there's a few things that we need to understand. One is my heart breaks for the Palestinian people because I feel like they have leaders like in Gaza that are that are militant terrorist extremists that have hijacked uh, the government for under the puppet control of Iran and there are innocent Palestinians that are suffering as a result of this and we need to be praying for Israel we need to be praying for the Palestinians and that this doesn't create more hatred um that's a whole nother subject that we we could get into um so we do you know and also you know at least the PA condemned these attacks but it's still but it's but you know, there's still, they had an opportunity to make peace with Israel with the Oslo Accords, and they ultimately rejected it. And so time after time, there's been a failure in, I believe, the Palestinian leadership. And it's it's very, it's very sad, very, very difficult for the average Palestinian. But unfortunately, it's because of the poor leadership on their part, in my opinion, that has hijacked 
that movement for different purposes. That being said, listen, Americans need to make, need to understand that they don't just hate Israel, they hate Christians. Hamas hates Christians. Yeah, and yeah. they and and they would be happy to bring terrorism to the shore because they're backed by Iran. America is the big Satan. Israel is a little Satan. They're calling for days of rages and all this stuff. So we gotta be we we gotta we gotta be aware and we gotta be vigilant because this could spill over in some way to the United States. And so we need yeah. to be praying, we need to be vigilant. And we need to stand up against, and I so I think, yes, there's praying, but I think we need to stand up as ambassadors and stand up for the truth and the promises of God and to Israel and to dispel the lies that are being, because this is, this is a, above all, it's a propaganda war. And I yep. think that, and I think that what we've seen is in these rallies, places like Harvard University. New York City, Times Square, USC, yeah, right. They're not just saying defeat. They're not just saying free Palestine. Listen, I could understand that. They're not just saying Israel stop the war. They're saying gas the Jews. They're chanting this traditional slogan of 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 the original 1948 war of from from river to the sea, Israel will be free. I mean, uh, Palestine will be free. What they're saying is from the West Bank, which is the border with Jordan, okay, to the Mediterranean Sea, they're going to occupy it all. It basically means they want to destroy and wipe out the Jewish state altogether. This is showing what the real heart and what the real perspective of many of these people are. It's not just, that's why I said before, it's what they're saying and what they want. If they wanted a two-state solution, they wouldn't be saying from the river to the <laughs> sea, good. Yeah. right? I mean, come on. I mean that, right? And how so we need to understand that. So we should be praying. We need to make sure we don't live in fear. God is in control. He's got a plan and purpose. None of this catches him by surprise. And I think the positive thing that we need to believe for is that on, we've entered into the new year on the Hebrew calendar just, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, two weeks before this attack. Okay. The year of the open door on the Hebrew calendar, 5784, God is opening a door in this season. One of the interesting things is doors are connected to transitions. Uh, there's always transitions at the door. Abraham was sitting at the door when there was a transition. Your wife is going to conceive and bear a child. Hannah was at the door of the tabernacle when God said, you're going to conceive. And That's most good. importantly, God says, when is God is bringing Israel out of Egypt, he said, put the blood on the doorposts of your house. Doors represent transition from inner to outer, from one season to another. It represents the close of one season or one chapter and the beginning of another. So with that, doors are connected to redemption. That's why Jewish people put the mezuzah, the uh, says these little boxes with scriptures on the doorposts of their house, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 through 9, okay? And so 
there is a door open for redemption and revival, I believe, that is beginning to open. Not only is the door, uh, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock, Revelation. If you open the door to your heart, I will come in, okay, and dine with you. There is also the idea of this is 5784. Four is connected to redemption. I will gather you from the four corners of the earth. I mean, we could get into all sorts of things <laughs> with four and redemption, but I believe that there is a desire for God for there to be a move similar to there was after 9-11 when people's hearts became open and churches were packed because of the uh because of the everything that happened, because of the horror of the terror attack in times of desperation. In times of crisis, people become more open. They say, right, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? In the midst of the <laughs> war, people are crying out, there's a God out there, you know, help us. So we need to believe for that. And I know you are seeing God move at your church in incredible ways. Yeah. You know, we've seen a massive response uh, recently. And we talked about that. You you share with me how you think we're in this John 21 filling the net season, which I've shared that with so many people. Let me say one thing you said earlier, which I think a lot of people don't realize, and that is, according to the Quran, uh, Muhammad said every foot that a Muslim's foot treads on, he must claim for Allah. And what they mean by claim is by any force necessary, i.e. destruction, death, and so in the we're so we're dealing with a system, although they'll try to disguise it as peaceful or endearing or inviting or a great way of life, we're dealing with a system that if you really reduce it to the irreducible minimum, we're talking about control and power by any means possible. And it's a different kind of mindset that I don't think we understand. And like you said, this is not going to be just a war over the pond somewhere. Like this is coming to our neighborhood if we're not aware. And I love that charge to be aware. We got to be vigilant. And you're absolutely right. I mean, part of the issue here is that this is an affront to the honor of Allah from a Muslim perspective. The fact that the quote unquote, and they, you know, you know, in the Quran, Jews and Christians are called apes, descendants of apes and pigs. Okay. So there is so yes. So this is an affront to all that the infidels would control a land that they occupied, but not just a land that they occupied. Jerusalem contains the third holiest site for Muslims. And so the fact that Jews control Jerusalem and the third holiest site. And in fact, one of the justifications for this attack, it's called was called the Al-Aska flood. And Al-Aska refers to the mosque that sits on the Temple Mount. On the Temple Mount, you have the Dome of the Rock, where it's believed, you know, Muhammad ascended into heaven in one of his night visions, which is also for Jews and Christians, a place where Abraham offered Isaac. And the place where the temple stood and Yeshua, you know, went and worshiped and David's temple and Solomon's temple, all that. But at the at the other end of it, on, on the southern part, there is the Al-Aska Mosque, which 
is, you know, again, this is considered, these two sites are considered the third holiest site in Islam. So that even makes it even more, uh, you know, so they claim because Jews went on the Temple Mount and prayed that this was a desecration and a breaking of the status quo. And therefore, this is in part what they claim was their reason and the legitimacy of them doing what they did with the murder. But again, it's th this is the thing we have to understand, right? Everywhere where radical Islam is in existence and has control, there is a systematic either elimination of the Christian faith and Jews. We see that throughout the Middle East. There is a systematic destruction and persecution of Christians in the Middle East. Or there is an extreme um, discrimination and hardship that believers face. And if you when you go to Israel, you go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem used to be majority Christian. Now it's majority Muslim and Christians are discriminated against. They struggle to survive. And, you know, I, you know, I Christians, many, many Arab Christians will not go to Manger Square to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on Christmas because there are extremist Muslim youth that are out there throwing bottles, sexually harassing the women. This is what happens under that sort of system. So imagine if they actually did get control over East Jerusalem and over the Temple Mount, over the old city. I mean, forget it. I mean, it would be an absolute, there would be no freedom of religion in the sense that we know it today, which would be a disaster. And no trips and no visits to the land. And yeah, because like you said, on that Temple Mount, you have three religions converging at one time, Islam. Obviously, afterward, but Christianity and uh, Judaism or the Jewish people all converging where they say this is a holy site for all of us. So it's an interesting uh, yeah, dynamic. And, and, and even though Jewish people can like have political and military authority over it, they have maintained the status quo and allowed the Muslims uh, to run it. And they don't allow, you know, synagogue services or formal prayer services you know, on the Mount, they've actually respected the fact that although it is the number one Jewish holy site in the world, and it is the third Islamic holy site in the world for the sake of peace, yep. Israel has chosen to give complete management of it to the Arab Muslims. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's really it's really uh, disillusioning when you when you walk up there and you're on the place where the Temple Mount was, and Jesus turned the tables over, and Jesus preached in the portico, and then you look over and you see this place uh, with military police who are monitoring people holding hands and disrespecting uh, the Alaska. I mean, it's it's mind blowing. It's really surreal when you walk in. But again, it just shows how Israel has acquiesced in a sense or made concession for these people exist right so yeah, like you said there's piece. two they've been there's two to there's do. two sources of media we got to remember there's the american sanction which we get you know that that's been 
changed and rearranged to get to, and then there's actually what's happening on the ground. And it's hard to discern sometimes the two, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of propaganda and fake news. Um, and the reality is, is that that the root of anti-Semitism at the root of this attack by Hamas is a demonic spirit that wants yep. to see a destruction of the Jewish people uh, because if you destroy the Jewish people or harm the Jewish people, you know, either show God's a liar that he's not faithful to his promises, he can't preserve his people like he said, or theoretically pre pre prevent the second coming because the Jewish people have to be in the land and ultimately, they have to receive Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, and say, Baruch HaBab and I, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. So if they're not there, the Bible's not true, God's a liar, or, you know, this persecution um, makes Jewish people doubt the God of Israel, which then makes it harder for them to have faith or come to faith. So there's just so many different, you know, components to it. But at the root, it's a this is the problem ultimately. You can't solve a political, you can't solve a spiritual problem with a political solution. And people might say, well, mm. it's not a Christian, Muslim, Jewish problem. It's not about that. It's good versus evil. It's about terrorism. And yes, there is uh, some truth in that. But to understand that the evil is a spiritual evil. Yeah. So therefore, yeah. There is no political solution. If, if the solution was simply as easy as they, as as Arab, the Arab people wanted their own state, and they would be happy with that, and would be happy to live a coexistence with Israel for that, they would have had a state many years ago. <laughs> yeah, but that's not <laughs> the case. And I'm not saying there's not many Palestinians that would be okay living with Jushi. But I'm what I am saying is that at the very least, the leadership and the forces behind the leadership, both spiritual and political, have demonstrated that this is not a political issue. It is a spiritual issue. And the reality is, is the world is being lied to when they're told that this is just simply about a people wanting their freedom. And believe me, I would love for there to be for them to have their freedom, but it's not going to lead to peace. That's the problem. Yeah. No, it's so good. So good. All right. Let's transition into the book. That's very, very helpful, but I want to get to your book because I really want to recommend it to people to read. And you and I, I, I have taught on this, for years, but you have given me a fuller understanding of gematria and numbers. And I remember when I first shared this on the podcast, the, the guy that was on it with me is like, really? And I said, you got to understand the Jewish, the Hebrew language. And I learned this from, uh, I, I take in Hebrew, but didn't know this. Marty Solomon was the one who told me this. The Hebrew language has roughly 8,000 words in the, in the Hebrew language. In the English European language, there's roughly 200,000 words comparably and so and you make the case for this so they have to get creative with the language and every word is pregnant with meaning and even the words are numerical in the sense where they have value and the numbers have meaning as well and so 
if that's hard to wrap your mind around, just just wait. We're we're going to go down the rabbit hole with this. But <laughs> for example, like the number one, one God. The number two is two tablets, right? The number three is three fathers. Number four is four corners of the earth. Uh, the number 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. Number six, incomplete. Number seven, completion. But I love this. I didn't know this. One. Right out the gates in Signs and Secrets of the Messiah, you introduce us to the number eight. And I had known that it was eight days of consecration. You gave some other things I thought were really cool. The, the eight vestments, uh, the vestments worn by the priests. And you gave the spices, which was cool. But but show us this insight that's so cool. The number eight was the number of days they had to prepare and consecrate the temple before something happened when God blessed the temple. And you well, make this connection to Jesus. Show us yeah, this. Well, so well yeah, what's interesting is that, and we go a little deeper. So, well, yeah. So, so basically, going back to even Moses, they put the tabernacle they took the tabernacle down and up for eight days okay and then it says in jewish tradition that on the eighth day the tabernacle supernaturally raised itself and established itself on the eighth day well why is that so significant well we have to understand eight represents the number of the supernatural it represents the number of the miraculous so seven is the number of the completion of the natural world eight is the number that transcends and goes beyond so in jewish thought eight is the number of ultimately the kingdom of god it's the number that rises above the natural it's a step up we see this even in music an octave is a step up it's going up to the next uh higher note uh musically and that's also true spiritually and, you know, in the natural world, it's a, it's a number that represents the uh, supernatural. So think about it for a moment. Yeshua was the eighth son of Jesse. Mm. Yeshua and Jesus, Jesus in Greek adds up to 888. And mm -hmm. Jesus, we think of Jesus rising on the first day of the week, but he actually rises on the eighth day. He dies on Friday, which is the sixth day of the week. He Why? Because God created the sixth world in six days and rested. So God finished the work of creation on the sixth day. Yeshua finishes the work of redemption in, this, in the new creation, what, what's needed for new creation on the sixth day. He goes into the grave and rests on the seventh day, the Shabbat, and he rises on Sunday, which is the eighth day, the number of new beginnings in the same way that the tabernacle supernaturally rose on the eighth day. So Yeshua supernaturally rises because he's the word that became flesh, John 1, 14, and tabernacled among us. You Come can on. <laughs> see it as a fulfillment of Amos 9, where God says, I will raise up the fallen tabernacle of David, okay, and this is Jesus who is the embodiment of the divinic dynasty of the fallen tabernacle. He is raising it up again. Eight turned on its side is the number of infinity. So at the death and resurrection, the infinite breaks into the finite because the kingdom has begun to break into this world. Again, it points to him as the ultimate son of David. It points eight, the number of new beginnings. Eight connected to the high priest and the garments that he wore. 
and the eighth day dedication of the temple. He is the new tabernacle, again, in the Messianic kingdom. You know, in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple because he is the temple. Again, he is the tabernacle. I'm going to keep going on. Unbelievable, yeah. Uh, connections. But I think there's something important that I just want to say by way of kind of introduction, which is why numbers matter. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it might seem strange to a Western perspective, but I want to think about how important this is. If a, if, if a skeptic or a more academically minded individual, whether they're a Christian or not, looks at the Genesis account, they could say, well, Genesis 1, God speaks the world into existence. This is just myth. You know, the ancients, you know, they didn't understand science, so they had a simplistic understanding. And so therefore, they just kind of, you know, spoke as they knew. But we, phenomenological language, but we know better now. But if you understand, we live in a mathematical universe. And, and Hebrew alphabet is letters and numbers, and God speaks the world into existence. And he creates heaven and earth. He holds all things together by his word, right, is what the New Testament tells us. Well, the letters of Hebrew, in a sense, form the code for the spiritual aspects of creation. The letters, you could say, form the, the, uh, the, the code for the mathematical the, the, the portion of creation. So when God speaks the world into existence, he it's quantum physics. He's creating yeah. both the he's creating the natural code of creation, which is numeric, and spiritual code of creation. Or another way that you could say is that, and some scientists actually, some scientists actually think this, that if letters and numbers are interchangeable, what God is doing, he is actually coding creation like a computer code, which is made up of letters and numbers. And then you could say that the fall, in a sense, is a virus that enters into the system and that wants to cause it to crash. Wow. And so I think that's important because yeah. if you understand this, there is no contradiction with science. The mathematical foundation of creation when God speaks the world into existence is part of that speaking because letters and numbers are interchangeable. And therefore, if creation is based on mathematics and God's word is the basis of creation, shouldn't there be a connection and shouldn't there be a mathematical aspect of the scriptures too? But just to say this one other thing, we don't make doctrine or develop theology based on numerical value of words. It is illustrative. It, it, it takes us a level deeper into things that are clearly revealed in scripture. But I just want to be clear, we're not building a doctrine or a theology based solely on the numbers that is not found anywhere else. Yeah. And another thing we're not doing is the, the, the Bible code book where we're trying yeah. to find prophetic Nostradamus predictions by looking at crossword puzzles of the Hebrew. What you're saying is this is a very Hebraic way that is, has has been lost through the years through the translation that we have missed. And and this is really what the book is doing. It's taking some of these numbers and and uh, the meaning that is basically hidden in plain view as we read the Bible, and you're bringing them to life. I mean, even on the the the, the sign of the the feeding i mean of the turning of the water and the wine 
you talk about the number three and on the third day, why that's important. And what does that have to do with the wedding? And then the six jars, which were insufficient, the number six, why not 10? Why not five? What, what was your favorite part of, of the book uh, as you wrote, as you wrote, obviously the, the conversation with Nicodemus is important. I, I loved all that, but what was your favorite part of the whole book? Oh man. Or, I mean, favorite it's, it's, so, it's so hard to say what, uh, you know, what my favorite, uh, you know, part is. I mean, I think that, First, let me just say, I think that, you know, one of my favorite chapters is for sure um, the pool of Bethesda. Uh, the man was an invalid for 38 years. And again, what we need to understand, if there's a detail in the Bible, it's there for a reason. God doesn't waste words, right? You know, why six stone pots? Because and the first miracle of the water into wine, because man was created on the sixth day. In Jewish thought, he fell on the sixth day. When Messiah dies, he dies on a Friday, which is the sixth day of the week. So on the same day, man was created in Jewish thought, we fell. He dies as a second Adam to make a tikkun, a repair, you know, for that. And when Yeshua does the miracle with six stone pots, what he's doing is, you know, he's restoring what had been lost. Yeshua dies on the cross because man stole from a tree. So God puts back on the tree for you and me to undo the sin of the first man and woman. <laughs> he has a crown of thorns on his head because what's the curse of creation? The ground would produce thorns and thistles. He's literally taking the curse of creation on his head to reverse it and to restore the blessing. And so when you look at the six stone pots, the rabbis say, that in the Messianic kingdom, we are going to drink the wine at the at the great banquet in the Messianic kingdom, the wine reserved from the six days of creation, hence the six stone pots. He's giving the disciples and us a sneak preview of what is to come and beginning to restore the fruitfulness of the kingdom. And wine in the Bible in many places, Genesis 49 uh, they'll tie their donkey to the choicest grapevine. They'll wash their garments in the blood of grapes. Amos 9, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Uh, wine is symbolic of the kingdom. So, so it's a, he's declaring the kingdom has come. I'm the second Adam. I'm the greater Moses. Moses turned the water into blood. He turns it into wine because he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And then you come to the. 38 years old. Yeah. Yeah, you come to the man who couldn't walk for 38 years. Well, many people don't think about this, but that's an important detail because Israel wandered in the desert for 38 years. We think they wandered for 40 yeah. in the desert for 40. But it was in the second year that they sent the spies <laughs> into the land, didn't believe that they could take the land. Ten bring an evil report. Joshua and Caleb bring the positive report because of the sin of the spies. God says you'll you that generation won't go into the wilderness. Deuteronomy tells us they wandered for 38 years in the desert because of their unbelief and their disobedience. And so Yeshua is saying to this man, listen, and he's saying to the religious leaders, you have a choice. You can either be like the generation that came out of Egypt and you can die in this state, or you can believe and rise up and go into the land and take it. And I think it's such an important message for all of us because this man couldn't walk for 38 years. He seemed hopeless. 
Mm. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. This man was stuck in this Mm. position. He never thought anything was going to change for him. That's why when Yeshua says, do you want to be healed? He answers with an excuse as to why he hadn't been healed. Not, you would think he'd be like, yeah, come on, heal me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But this man has a choice, just like the religious leaders have a choice. And Yeshua is the ultimate hope dealer. Mm. Hope is the belief that your future is going to be better than your past. And God wants you to know that in him, your future can be better. And we live in a world where there's so much hopelessness. One of the reasons why we wrote the book is because I think when people look at the world from a natural perspective, it seems when they look at their situation, when they look at what's going on globally, it seems like, man, it's depressing. It seems hopeless. But these miracles are meant to remind us that, listen, God, with God, the impossible become can become possible. It doesn't matter how long you've been in your situation. Just like Yeshua healed the man who couldn't walk, he can heal you and change things for you in an instant. So good. And what, by yeah. the way, 38 is a numerical value of Libo, which means his heart. Huh. Yeshua was testing this man to see what was in his heart. Right. And he was testing Israel for 38 years in the wilderness to see what was in their heart. Mm. And because the heart of the matter is always the heart of the issue. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much there that you you can get into. Well, okay, we don't want to give it away. But I I mean, you need to pick up the book if you haven't read it already. Signs and Secrets of the Messiah, Rabbi Jason Sobel. I'll say one thing about hope that I, I, I came across recently. I think it was said by Hal Lindsey. He said a human being could live 40 days without food. They can live eight days, uh, eight days without water. They can live three. No, they can live three, uh, days, three without days without water. water. They can live eight minutes without air, but they can they can't live one moment without hope. Did you say that in the book? Yeah, we did. We did. So yeah, that's where I got. Yeah, that's where I got it from. And so that, and that's what I love about the book. Not only is it theological, and not only is it making connections from old and new, and hermeneutical and practical, but it's very applicable and it's very hopeful and it and it's very pastoral. So I appreciate you spending a lot of time after you unpack all the exegetical work. You really spend some time practically. So hey, I know you're busy, and I know you've been uh, traveling a lot, but. Man, always good to hang, and I'm (laughs) grateful to be able to present you to our audience with the Forgotten Jesus Podcast. Oh, thank you, brother. Great to be with you, Shalom Shalom. Yes, sir. (laughs) 